Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Irish photographer Richard Moss, born 1980, attempts to capture the complex realities of loss and destruction. Having gained initial recognition and acclaim for his work on the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Moss became increasingly frustrated with the constraints of conventional documentary photography. In an attempt to refresh the medium and re-engage viewers, Moss began using a military-grade surveillance camera, focusing on migrants and refugee camps. Locating his subjects and creating images through thermal radiation, Moss subverts the aggression of the military technology to reveal the hardships of those displaced by war. This work culminated in the 52-minute video, Incoming, filmed by Trevor Tweeton with a score by Ben Frost that vacillates between scenes of the profoundly beautiful and the meditative, the terrifying, and the horrific. In conjunction with the installation opening at the National Gallery of Art on November 17, 2019, Moss discussed this narrative of displacement and migration in a conversation with Sarah Greeno, senior curator and head of the Department of Photographs, and Andrea Nelson, associate curator of photographs. Incoming is on view through March 22, 2020. We're delighted that Richard has agreed to join us um, today so that we can talk about his work, but more specifically about incoming. But before we do, a few words of introduction. I know that both Andrea and Richard would, would join with me in thanking uh, Brian Duda, who's the operations supervisor and media specialist in the Department of Media Productions here at the gallery. Without his extraordinary technical expertise and his really dedicated work over the last few months, it would not have been possible to install and present incoming in as magnificent a manner um, as it is in the East Building. We'd also like to thank Allie Peel and her team in the Department of Academic Programs um, for organizing this afternoon's event. And by no means least, we would like to thank Jim and Kathy Steele, whose funding for photography lectures, conversations, and symposia um, on photography in the last few years has been really instrumental in helping us to increase the number of programs um, that we have had. Without their support, um, those programs would be greatly limited. So um, for someone um, as young as Richard Moss, um, he has accomplished um, an immense amount. After graduating from King's College in London with a BA in literature, he was awarded in quick succession an, an MRes um, in cultural studies from the London Consortium, a postgraduate uh, diploma in fine arts from Goldsmith, and then an MFA in photography from Yale University. At the same time, he's had numerous exhibitions literally around the world and won some of the most uh, distinguished prizes that the field has to offer, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2011, the Deutsche Borsch Photography Prize in 2014, and most recently, the Pre-Pictet um, Global Award in Photography and Sustainability in 2017. 
He also represented Ireland um, in the 2013 Venice Biennale with his multimedia projection titled uh, The Enclave on the Democratic Republic of Congo. And he was one of the youngest people elected ever uh, to Magnum in 2015. His video incoming was co-commissioned by the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne and the Barbican Art Gallery in London. And he has the distinct honor of having it be shown this fall in three separate locations around the United States, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in Boston, and here at the National Gallery. Um, so please join me in welcoming Richard Moss. So Richard, how did you get from a BA in literature um, to, uh, to photography? That's a good question. Um, first of all, thank you for coming. And uh, it's a massive honor, one of the greatest honors an artist um, can, um, um, can receive is to show at the National Gallery of Art. Um, thanks to Kaywin Felwyn and Andrea Nelson and Sarah Greeno and Brian Duda and everyone who worked on the show. Um, Thank you. Uh, so yeah, to go from English lit to um, to this peculiar form of parafiction, I suppose you could call it. Um, I see the connections. Um, perhaps you don't. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um, actually I wanted to go to art school, but my my mammy said no. <laughs> um, and I think you know, mother's always right. Um, because you study English lit, you get you get various tools of literary criticism and 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 good old um, tool of reading, which I've forgotten recently. But um, and you read a few books, um, you you broaden the mind, the old brain box, um, and so it was good. You know, you get to grow up a bit as well. And uh, uh, um, but right after I graduated, I went to Berlin and worked as a dishwasher in an Irish pub, um, <laughs> and as you do and. Um, I saved, scraped some pennies together to buy a, a Golf Zwei vehicle and drove down, quit the job, drove down to Bosnia to take pictures of the uh, missing persons crisis there, which was, I meant to do it as a photojournalist, you know, but it's a difficult thing to photograph because you're photographing an absence. Um, so I immediately found the, the sort of limitations of photojournalism, um, the language of the visual language of photojournalism failed me. Or at least I failed it. Uh, we failed each other. Um, and so I immediately realized, having grown up in a house um, full of artists, that actually contemporary art, if I could somehow hybridize the two, I would maybe, I would find a way to more adequately re represent this very complicated post-war situation um, in, 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 in the Balkans. Um, so that was the beginning of the journey. And so almost all along then, you've had this interest in sort of merging or shall I say exploring that border between the, the document um, and, and fiction, between um, reality and fiction. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, I think my work has always been, almost always been documentary. I mean, it's documenting historically significant events as they unfold. Um, yet there, I'm bringing it into a museum space um, and I'm giving it a very different context to photojournalism, reportage photography, which is very different. Um, and it's really about making people feel something in, in, in a way only artists can do. Um, 
So yeah, does that, is that yeah? Um, tell us a bit about the um, infra project um, and also um, the the enclave, which um, was shown at the Venice Biennale in twenty thirteen. Well, try to make it brief because I could go on all night. Uh, but I started this work in, the, in January twenty ten, um, and towards the end of two thousand nine, Kodak um, announced the end, the, the discontinuation, the extinction of Aerochrome, which was a very eccentric kind of film uh, format, the, a type of film they made, and they began making in World War II in collaboration with the US military. And its primary purpose at that time was camouflage detection. So it was an um, aerial surveillance technology um, designed to reveal green camouflage in green landscape. So to the human eye, obviously, green on green is hard to see, right? But if they realized that if you could image and register infrared light, um, infrared light behaves in a different way. It, it is reflected from the chlorophyll in healthy green plants, but it's absorbed by dead matter, such as fabric. Um, it's not living, right? Mm -hmm. So thereby, and you can see here, it's quite a good example, that little path, there's a green path um, in the foreground. And that's because people have walked that path so much that the plants have died. Um, just a little mud path. And so that's represented here in this image as cyan green. Whereas the, the parts of the hills that are, that are um, healthy, with healthy foliage, are, they go pink, fuchsia, red. And so immediately you could see through color contrast, they were able to pinpoint enemy camouflage installations. So at the moment of its extinction, of its death as a medium, I decided, well, what shall I do? I, I bought a lot of this film as much as I could, and I said, what shall I do? And... Um, the specifics of the situation, the sort of cycle of vicious little wars in Eastern Congo, cycle of um, civil wars, I suppose, that it spilled across from Rwanda after the genocide, and it kept the cancerous cycle. It kept re-emerging. Um, um, and one statistic from the IRC um, put it: 5.4 million people had died of war-related causes in Congo since 90, between 98 and 2008, and so. I read that, I, I couldn't believe a staggering number like this. And yet we barely hear about the conflict in, in, in the newspaper. It doesn't make the front page. And so there, I realized immediately there's a failure of documentary photography or of journalism on some level to tell the story adequately. And so I said to myself in my own, my own little way, I said, well, if I take this film which can reveal invisible light, can see the unseen, and I take it to Congo, um, and try to document an overlooked or hidden war, perhaps by by sort of smashing these two together, even on a metaphorical level, I could uh, more adequately tell the story. Um, and you know, as artists, we do we, we we create we set up situations for ourselves as experiments, and then they congeal over over the through the process of making, um, sometimes leading to great failure. <laughs> Um, and sometimes leading to its own peculiar success, in, at least for yourself as an artist. Um, so that was a five-year journey, and I, I traveled very widely uh, in Congo and worked extensively there, and did uh, published three, three or four books, and um, and that's that's that. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, though, I mean that really has its public debut um, at in 2013 at the Venice Biennale, or a very big debut, I should say there. Um, but it seems almost 
soon thereafter, um, you're starting to work on, um, on incoming. Um, can you tell our audience sort of a little bit about how that happened and what it is literally that, that we're seeing in incoming? Yeah, of course. Um, so um, here again, I begin with the medium. So you remember in, in the Congo work, I began, became fascinated first with the photographic medium, and then I worked backwards to find my subject. And it's exactly the same here with incoming. What actually happened was um, in 2014, I was opening a show in London, and a lady came up to me, Sophie, she, she said her name was, and, and I, I shook her hand. I said, okay, okay, because sometimes you get some strange people at the openings, you know. <laughs> and uh, she said, Richard, you don't know me, but uh, I have something to tell you about. I said, oh, I know, okay, fair play, yeah, okay, uh, what is it? She's like, well, Richard, there's a camera I want you to, to, to be aware of. Um, and so I said, well, should we just meet tomorrow for tea? Because uh, um, she said, yes. So it turns out we met, we met for tea in, in Soho in London, and um, it turns out she went to the same high school as me and uh, in the Dublin mountains. And um, so we got on great, and we're now good friends, but she works, she's one of the most, I suppose, awarded, most celebrated uh, wildlife cinematographers in the world. Um, she shoots for BBC Planet Earth, and she's she's extraordinary. And her sort of superpower as a as a, as a wildlife DP, di director of photography, is the long range stuff. Mm -hmm. um, she's able to figure out which way the leopard is going to jump next and be there before he, you know. So she really got excited by this particular kind of thermal camera that she was begging her producers at the BBC to, to, to buy for her. And they said no for all kinds of sensible reasons. It's extremely large, extremely expensive, and um, also it doesn't have a wide angle field of view. So in television, you need to have the establishing shot. So you couldn't tell those, those sort of conventional TV stories, narrative, you, couldn't, you didn't have the same ability to tell the story in the, in the way that TV requires. So they said no, she came to me, she said, look, you got to know about it. So she, I said, let's go up to this multinational weapons company and find out more, <laughs> <laughs> as you do. So she said, grand. And so we, off we went in her little car. And, um, and there was this extraordinary weapons facility in, in, in Essex, east of London. Um, and men in white suits and clipboards came out. And they knew her because they had had a relationship because she rents lower grade cameras of theirs for nocturnal work in the Serengeti, etc. Um, and so we went up to the roof and, and, and there was this camera I had set up and uh, I started playing with it with me and Sophie started playing with it. And I realized immediately the way it describes the world is of such an extraordinarily unique and original, um, um, I don't know, aspect. Um, I was in, hooked, I was in love immediately. And then I just realized I had to somehow acquire the camera, <laughs> which wasn't easy. Um, and so just a bit about the camera, I suppose I should introduce it. By the way, these two here are my two long-term collaborators, Trevor Tweeten on the left with the camera, um, and that's mounted on a Steadicam. And on the right is Ben Frost, the composer, sound designer. And these just, the three of us have been working together for about 10 years. Uh, we worked in Congo also, and we're very good friends. Um, and so that's the camera there, um, and it's about, 50 pounds without the cables, without the Steadicam, without the battery bricks, without the laptops or the, all the other stuff. What Trevor's got there, he's got about, a, he's got about a, at least 150 pounds of equipment or maybe 180 pounds of equipment, probably more actually, that he has to carry on, his, on this Steadicam apparatus. 
Now, the extraordinary thing about the camera is that it's a weapons-grade camera. Um, it's designed for militaries, police forces. Um, it's sold to all across the world, not for consumer use, not for professional use. Um, and it can image human body heat from 18 miles away, day or night. Um, so it's extremely almost sinister, uh, very powerful, can see further than the human eye. It's actually, the name of it is the Horizon, the, the model name. Um, and you are actually limited by the Horizon when you use it because it sees so far that you have to get elevation in order to see over the Horizon. Um, and its primary purpose um, um, was designed for um, insurgent detection, tracking, and targeting, battlefield situational awareness, um, long-range border enforcement, um, as well as search and rescue. So I see, and I still see this camera as, a, as one aspect of the European Union's response to the refugee crisis, as it's known. In other words, I could use the camera to think through the ways in which we've responded to this sort of tidal wave of, 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 of refugees landing on our shores. It's a way of meditating, perhaps, on our response. So in a way, the camera becomes a mirror um, to not just me, but, but to our society, to the European Union immigration policy. Um, is that? Yes, I think you yeah. should jump in. Yeah. And... No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just quickly add. Um, you know, what you're seeing with the Congo work, what you're seeing with incoming is that you're also taking this technology mm -hmm. and subverting it, flipping it um, for um, artistic purposes. So you're, you're bringing in aesthetics to a technology that wasn't designed for that. Um, you know, even with the Congo work, what strikes you immediately as a viewer is the color. Um, the emotional impact of the color, the beauty of color, um, and the tonality and incoming, um, and just the way that you're seeing seeing that visually. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that strategy. Yeah, so my opinion, which is kind of unorthodox actually these days, um, is that beauty aesthetics are, are, are the most powerful tool of communicating. Um, and that's what we do as artists. And there's, I don't see any reason to, to stimmy that or to filter that. I think if we can amplify the aesthetic power of the image or of whatever, of the, of the poem or of whatever art form we're working within, then we can more adequately communicate whatever we're trying to say and, and, and reach the viewer in a more meaningful way. And I think that's out of fashion in the art world now because I think beauty is kind of, uh, it's... Um, it's considered a bad thing somehow. And so this is a point of tension within the work. Um, I think the highly aestheticized approach that I take does upset some people um, because we're dealing with narratives of human suffering. Um, so, so there is a tension there, the beauty and the, and the, and the suffering. However, it is a, quite a, a, a different kind of beauty in this work. I mean, with the Congo work, yes, it's, it's, a, it's clearly beautiful in almost a storybook way, you know, Sugar Candy Mountain. And, whereas this is like a really scratchy, distorted, dazzling beauty. It's a, it's a, it's a tonal beauty, it's a, it's a monochrome beauty. Um, sometimes maybe it's ugly actually, <laughs> I'm not sure. But we're certainly trying to push aesthetics to, to do something. Um, maybe just strike the viewer between the eyes, I suppose. Mm -hmm. No, and um, something if, when you go to watch Incoming, 
you'll notice you'll notice distortions. You'll notice, and these are effects of the of the camera, um, but they're quite compelling. So yes, it's a very much a different a different kind of beauty, but beauty. Of we have a clip um, from Incoming because we realized that many of you might not have seen it yet. Um, uh, first, we have a clip, I think, of, of, of Trevor here um, carrying the camera around. C can you tell us where he is? He's in the, the jungle refugee camp in Calais in France. Uh, at that point in November, sorry, late October 2016, the jungle was being dismantled by Francois Hollande and his government, the CRS riot police and the Pas de Calais um, fire brigade, um, and, the, and it was burning. It was being burnt and dismantled. Uh, the refugees were being packed onto buses. It, it looked like a kind of apocalyptic scene. Um, and so this is just a short clip to show you how he sort of choreographs in the field, which is extremely intuitive. Usually a Steadicam is used in a Hollywood studio and it's carefully mapped out. And whereas to use it in the field, with an unpredictable situation around you, it's a, it's a whole different game. Um, well, this is a, um, a shot of incoming um, as it is projected on three screens. When you go to the East Building, you'll see that the screens are curved and they sort of wrap around you to give this extraordinarily immersive um, effect. We're going to show um, uh, just a, a clip of it that's been modified greatly. Please don't judge the end result from the clip that we're about to show you because um, it's really a quite different thing.
There's no water coming out. There's no water coming out. Okay, do more breathings. Okay. Five more breathings. I can hold again in the area. Um, so you saw there um, several different clips um, from incoming. Um, uh, there was, um, you saw the burning um, of the refugee camp in Calais. Um, you saw soldiers uh, um, on the USS Roosevelt um, who were beginning to load missiles um, onto, onto various airplanes. You also saw the capsizing um, of a boat off the island of Lesbos, and then the uh, and then the the rescue workers, um, but I think it gives you um, a, a very good sense of how this um, video sort of seems to turn our our normal way of certainly seeing and understanding of the world um, inside out by registering not visible light and color, um, but um, but heat, um, and transforming everything into these. Um, shades of, of black, um, gray, and white. That's immediately apparent, I think, in the clips that we showed you. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit, Richard, about your use of sound, because that, too, is so critical um, in the video. Right, so um, Ben Frost um, is the artist when it comes to the sound. Um, and he, you know, he, he doesn't need to be directed, certainly can't be. Uh, <laughs> um, and no, he would travel with us into the fields gathering uh, materials um, when he could. He's got a very busy schedule. So when, he, when he's not there, I would be recording or, or, or somebody would be recording. And we would send the materials back. And he, um, about 30% of the film of the soundtrack was actually raw, untouched, unmodulated 
just straight primary recording when it fit. Um, but of course, it's being overlaid in real time onto, onto material that's been slowed down, by the way. So that we shot this, the video, 60 frames a second, and then we dropped, we reconformed it to 24 frames a second. So it's roughly two and a half times slower than real life. Yet, his primary field recordings were, were being played back in real time. So there's a disconnect there. But about 70%, most of it, um, would, he would modulate in the studio and he would distort. Um, and he would re, he would re, um, enforce certain motifs throughout the piece that are almost subliminal. For example, one of them that you can you can constantly hear throughout the piece is is the sound of an F-18 aircraft slamming down onto the deck of, of a U.S. aircraft carrier, and um, that's something that he comes back to. Um, and jet engines getting started, and um, it's very obviously chimerical, very ambient. He's a protege of Brian Eno, um, and disorienting. Um, um, and, and slightly emotive. Um, so you're led into the sort of, you think, oh, that's what I'm meant to be feeling. And then all of a sudden, he, he yanks you out of it and pull, pulls you in a different direction. And I think it really is a, at least 50% of the picture, as they say. Uh, um, and interestingly, he wrote three scores for the piece because it's a three-screen piece. He, when we'd finished shooting everything and he'd already written certain tracks, he said, all right, guys, we went to my studio in, in New York. He said, let's just throw, all, throw what we have away in terms of the sound. Turn those two projectors off. Turn only that one on, and I'm going to write a score just for that. And I'm like, all right, Ben, OK, fine. So we, we, went, we came back two hours later. I was like, OK, I've written a score for that. Turn that projector off and turn this one on. I'm just going to write a score uniquely for this, for this screen. So OK, 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 two hours later. And then he did the same for the third one. I said, like, OK, now press play. And we had all these accidental, disjunctive um, moments of disharm disharmony, but also moments of happy harmony and surprise and accidental. Yeah, all the happy accidents come out. Uh, and that was, that, that's, there's a certain amount of risk in doing that. And I, I think you can feel that in the score. Um, well, following up on that, um, you had mentioned in the past that you were thinking of a new language, right, for this camera, for your medium, that was one of compassion and disorientation. So you spoke a little bit, I think, about the disorientation through sound, but you're also working with three channels and sort of that immersive construction of the space. And just want to know if you could talk a little bit more about those, those two different approaches, right, wanting to create compassion, but also disorientation, right, for the viewer. Uh, can you just make the question shorter? For I'm Irish. I'm not so smart about the long ones, but yeah. Well, why why bring in compassion with disorientation for the viewer? Why do you want disorientation along with compassion? The piece is riven with tensions, and I hope that's clear to people. Um, constantly walking a tightrope or various tightropes. Um, for example, this feeling of invasiveness that the, the, you know, the camera can see, it can zoom in and can capture these very, very tender moments, very intimate moments. Um, yet it doesn't violate the people's identity because the camera inherently anonymizes the subject. So there's, it's constantly you're, you're kind of being pushed back and forth between feelings of uh, compassion and disorientation. Um, and not just in those ways, but also... Um, well, on many levels, I mean, 
And I think that's really something we, we really worked hard to achieve, uh, this ambiguity, this ambivalence. Um, and we hoped, we, we really hope not to make the piece didactic. Um, right. I mean, I, I, just to have three separate channels running very three different um, threads of visual imagery, um, this is a different na narrative strategy. Um, and as the viewer, you're trying, at times at least I was, I was trying to force the narrative at times onto this, but, um, it, and also it makes you want to, you need to come back and look at it several times, which is, I think is very, very intriguing. I mean, on some level, you become the editor, so you're sort of emancipating the viewer, one hopes. Um, they, they have to choose which scene, to, which screen to look at and what noise to put with it. And if you watch it several times, you can do it in many different ways, of course. So and the inter interpretation is really wide open, we hope. Um, that's what we're trying to achieve, because the refugee crisis is inherently complex and, and um, um, ambiguous. You know, there's a lot of ways to think and look at it. Um, it's one reason why we call the piece Incoming, because it's really about this, this, it's about our subjectivity as Europeans. Um, not trying to speak for the refugees at all. This is a piece by, for, and about a European subjectivity. It's a bi-European artist. It's about, it's, it's for a European audience. I'm sorry, in this case, an American one. Um, and it's about a European problem, you know, our failure. It's a mirror to reveal our failure um, to welcome these people in the ways that we'd agreed to according to human rights, the Geneva Conventions, the UN Convention, and international refugee law, all of these things that we are failing to uphold is this erosion of the human rights of the refugee in the last 10 years, particularly in the last five, not just in Europe, um, which is extremely disturbing and is undermining um, us as citizens also, uh, because we're all potential refugees. Um, Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> um, you, you've also said, though, that you hope that incoming, um, in your words, will implicate the viewer within the work's gaze to force the viewer to confront, confront their own participation on many levels, to make viewers see their, their own complicity um, in the pro problem of mass migration. Um, can you speak a little bit more about how it is that you hope to force this confrontation? Is it precisely through those disconnects um, uh, that we see often in the film where we're jarred trying to figure out exactly what it is we're looking at? Are there other elements as well? That's a good question. Um, it's funny, the real catalyst for me for, to make this film, you know, if you spend years touring around visiting refugee camps and, and seeing seeing these intercepting points, you know, migrant staging sites, but also the points of, of, of travel, the, the migrant routes, and it's, you know, it gets to you. You really feel bad after a while. There's a lot of struggle. Um, and, and you, you know, my society um, has failed these people. We're, we're not putting in place the infrastructure that is necessary for their asylum applications. And, um, and so that there's an extraordinary sense of shame that I felt after a while, particularly visiting one camp in Lesbos called Moria Camp. It's, a, it's humiliating to be a European. It's shameful. Um, the extraordinary um, squalor of that camp and the sickness, um, the deaths that occur there. They, at one point when I was filming, they even um, turned it into a prison, a certain part of the camp, and um, imprisoned the Afghan population within, and they, in protest, burned part of the camp. Um, so that, that shame is something that I wish to, trans, to transmit to you, to, to try to convey that to you, for you to feel for yourself, the ways in which our societies, and we 
as citizens with the agency that we have, are failing these people. Um, and I hope the piece does it in certain ways, and I suppose one of the ways it does it is, is, is if, you, if you're in a museum space in consuming an artwork that is giving you a certain aesthetic pleasure, but it's, it's getting in under your skin, it's making it, how could the artist do this? Actually, he's trying to make, to confront, for, to force to, you to confront yourself in the act of perception. That's at least my ambition, my intention, is, to, is for the work to, to um, discomfort, to confront. Um, and, to, and it does that in a, in a number of ways, in the ways, for example, in which it represents the figure of the refugee. It strips them of their individuality. It dehumanizes them in a way. And that's very intentional. The camera does this. It's a mediated world that we're seeing. Um, and I'm hoping to, 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 to reflect that back to the audience and to show, try to express this visually, the ways in which our society uh, regard and represent the refugee. Um, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have one more, que another question then. Um, you spoke a little bit about um, lunch, at lunch, about the, about lunch, um, at lunch, <laughs> um, about the importance um, of, uh, of books um, in, your, um, in your practice. Um, this is not a shameless plug for the book signing afterwards, but um, could you speak a little bit more how, um, how you use books, how they're different from the, the work of art itself, how, how they amplify what it is you're trying to do? Well, and I'll, I'll just jump in quickly, too, because you were speaking about um, you visited a lot more places than we see in incoming because there's another part of this project, which are photographs called the heat maps. And those are really, correct me if I'm wrong, mostly about the camps, different refugee camps um, that you were visiting and being a part of. So there's these the books and then the, the photographs as well. So... Yeah, I made two, two little, two books. This is the Castle, which is about these heat maps, which are a documentation of the, of the refugee camps themselves, the perimeter fences, and all of the infrastructure of, of the life that goes on in the camps, the port loos the air conditioning con condensers, the, the loudspeakers, the, the security gates, all of that life um, that goes on inside. And then Incoming is a book about this piece, which is a, sh a smaller book, um, and it's very much just these stills, actually, um, printed in, a, in a, a kind of a manual. And that book has an essay, an extract from Giorgio Agamben, um, who's a political theorist from Italy. Um, and the other book, The Castle, the, the name, by the way, is shamelessly stolen from Franz Kafka, um, for good reason. Um, I think that, that novel, The Castle, speaks to me about contemporary European Union. Um, it has essays by Judith Butler, Paul K. Santamore, um, a poem by Behrouz Bouchani, who, by the way, three days ago, uh, was released from Manus Island after six years languishing in a refugee camp. If, in case anyone knows him, it's extraordinary. And uh, essays by, in both cases, essays by me as well. And so all of that contextual background that we don't get when we go into the installation that's, that's deliberately left out, I try to put it in there to inform. I use the books to try to inform the viewer of of, of the situation that I encountered along the way and the specifics of it. Um, but within the artwork, of course, I've stripped that away to create very much a work, a visceral work of art that make you feel something rather than inform you um, in, in sort of bullet points like a report or a, or a piece of journalism. Um, 
so the books are very important for me to to help people who who are interested to learn more about the specifics to to, to know more. Um, is that? Should we open it up? Yeah, um, we th we thought we would um, open it up for um, any questions um, that you might have in the last um, remaining minutes that we have here. And so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, I think that um, it, if you just um, speak loudly, I think people should be able to hear your question. If not, we'll repeat it. I was just wondering about your safety. Like, did you ever feel that your life was in danger? <laughs> you, were kept, uh, you, were, you were shooting a lot of very strange environments, like as far as what most Americans are used to watching. So I was just wondering, it looked like it would be very dangerous. Um, actually, this project was a lot less dangerous than my work in Congo, um, because we're in refugee camps. You know, these are people who often are welcoming, you know, and just curious. They're bored because they can't work. They want to help. Um, so often I get assistance from young Syrian men who just want to help me carry stuff up the hill. Or um, Often I'd be invited in for cardamom coffee from a Kurdish family, and it was extraordinary coffee. And, um, they, if, 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 if they were able to communicate in English, then they would tell me their stories. And, you know, so it really was a pleasure often. Um, uh, there were a few tense moments. I think probably the tensest camp would have been the the, the Calais, the jungle in Calais. Um, and probably the most sketchy thing we did was um, was on the Syrian border. We were right in amongst Islamic State cells with a with a very desirable weapons technology. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, we 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 actually were very careful about timing. Get the hell out of here. Um, <laughs> And the Turkish police, are, they don't take prisoners either. They thought we were collaborating with the Kurds, which we weren't. Um, and then we went to the Sahara Desert. We were working in the you know, really deep Sahara, which is an extremely lawless place. Um, again, you have Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. You have Islamic State cells. And you have Boko Haram. <laughs> you name it. It's a long list, a long menu of Islamist groups and bandits in, in mid-Sahara where the where these migrant convoys were traveling. Um, so we, in that case, we, we, we worked with an escort, armed escort of, of, from the Niger army. We had about two technical pickup trucks full of um, extremely disciplined um, Niger army uh, soldiers for our safety. But I, honestly, I, it, you know, it was a picnic compared to the work in Congo. Um, yeah, so it was fine. And, and I think, just when I get asked this question, I really want to say, well, what's more important? Like, is the people where the refugees, their safety, and, and the trauma that they've lived through? You know, you have to remember, I have a passport. I can hop on a plane if things don't go right. They don't, um, and they don't have the same rights that I do, even though they should. Um, and so they're they're in a very much more vulnerable position. And there's a lot of mental health issues that happen in these refugee camps and sexual violence. And I think those are the sorts of threat or those are the sorts of things we should be focusing on when we think about, about this. But thank you for asking. Another question there. See, I just wanted to say, extremely hard work in what you do. You know, that can't be overemphasized enough, but also uh, thanks to your mom for you being, you know, <laughs> so maybe she interest you, uh, encouraged you with your book reading, which you did by yourself, but your literature degree, uh, fabulous to listen to. 
uh, as an artist, I don't always enjoy artist talks. <laughs> 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 it's fabulous because you can express yourself so fantastically well. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, an Irish friend, I assume. <laughs> Another one from a gentleman behind you. I wonder if, um, probably not when you were in a refugee camp, but when you were more kind of outdoors in the Mediterranean, filming the refugees from Northern Africa, did you uh, find the situation in which morally you felt that you have to drop your camera and help the people? Yeah, there are numerous occasions. Uh, yeah, sorry, Alex. Thanks. How are you doing? How was your party? Was it good? Um, <laughs> The question was, were there times when uh, we dropped the camera and, and intervened in, in what was happening? And yes, I think most photojournalists would, could count the n numerous occasions when they do. Um, yeah, for example, if, if we were filming a landing and the landing goes horribly wrong and there's people injured, um, yeah, you, 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 you get, you, we've, we've often helped people um, to get them to uh, a dry place. We've stopped filming, just said, look, this is screwed up put them in the back of our vehicle and driven them to the emergency centers that were several miles away and, you know, found them dry clothes. They have dry clothing sort of a place they give out dry clothing and given them some tea and then tried to connect them. In, in one case, there was a very, very severely physically disabled man from Afghanistan who'd, who'd, been, who'd been separated from his family, for example, and we, we spent some time trying to figure out where he was where they were and, and, and connected them. And, and, and I think that's what anyone would do. And a lot of, it was very heartening because a lot of the citizens on the island of Lesbos particularly, we, we saw a lot of good things happening there, a lot of volu voluntary activism. And by the way, that is against the law. That's what we, the uh, European Union regards that as human trafficking. Anytime you assist refugees to, to cross borders internationally, you're breaking the law, and you can be done. And I have, I have th this guy here. He was in a group called Humans for Humanity, and one of their, not him, but one of his colleagues was arrested um, and put in prison for human trafficking, just for, just for spending months of his own time voluntarily. He's a coast guard. He's a lifeguard, um, saving lives. Um, Salam, his name is. I think he's out of prison now, but he's yeah. It wasn't a great story. Um, so, any more questions? Oh, my uncle Bruce, the world's lead, the world's leading vampirologist. Um, it's true. He's also a vampire himself. Richie, <laughs> uh, well, could you talk? Would you be willing to talk a little bit about the pushback against your work that you've encountered? You don't have to. Pushback? Uh, <laughs> I have many trolls. Um, yeah. It takes many forms, you know, because you have, you have people with their agendas, and if you have a very open-ended work like this that's about something really tough and politically engaged, um, which, you know, let's face it, most people in the Western world have very, very hardened opinions already made about immigration and about these, these issues. And so people will come to, the, to a work like this, um, sometimes with the hackles up, um, and then I have sharpened um, to prove their agendas, you know. And so um, sometimes it's tough not to respond, but I think the best thing is to, to, to just let people have their opinion and not, not get too defensive, not respond publicly in many cases. Um, and, you know, some of the, some of the theses, because some of them have been huge, 
trenches of writing. You know, academics have gotten stuck in. Um, they've been, you know, extraordinarily elaborate and, and very erudite. Um, so I couldn't respond anyway because I'm not smart enough. But, <laughs> but in that case, um, somebody else, another academic, w leaned in on my on my on my defence, and it became a kind of ongoing um, helter skelter of academic uh, nonsense. A storm in a teacup. Um, by the way, it's not nonsense. This is this is how art is relevant, and it's very important that one of the one of the intentions of the the ambitions, the hopes um, for, in making work like this, is that it will stimulate discourse and stir discussion and get people talking. Um, so, in that sense, at least, I think we can say it's succeeded. Um, and then there's the stuff on social media, which is just you know this very simplistic trolling, where people who haven't even seen the work, you know, start slamming you. We had some very strange, clearly Russian trolls who, who were making some very preposterous comments early on. It was quite interesting. Um, so that lad here. I'm sure when you experienced living in the Congo, you had to do with an SLR to show children pictures you just took of them at the back of your, your camera. I'm curious with the way this Horizons camera sticks out like a sore thumb, if people came up and what their reactions were and what would be the response to what they were looking at without the story, what you're doing? Yeah, well, in Congo, we didn't have SLRs because we're shooting film. I mean, they were, they were actually shooting rangefinders, but they were loaded with film. So we couldn't show the kids anything because they had to go back to New York to process it. Um, but then you just pull your iPhone out and take a picture and show them. <laughs> um, um, the refugees, yeah, there were definitely some people who came up and wanted to see and... It's just a tiny little screen on a, a media samurai atomos. I don't know what the hell that was called, but it, it would, yeah, we could rewind it and, and, and play. And since it's black and white, it's hard to really understand what they're seeing, especially that scale. Um, um, it would, of course, be a very interesting question to bring this to Aleppo, for example. And I did bring the enclave, my work in Congo, to, to Goma, where it was made. I, that was a very difficult undertaking, but, but we did it. And I've actually recently been invited to show it in... The, minister, the Congolese Ministry of Culture have invited me to show it in Kinshasa, in a museum there. Um, and that, that will evoke some extraordinary responses, and it has. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested to explore that. But, but I didn't make this work for, for a Syrian audience. You know, I made it for a European one. So, um, yeah, I would love to... Syrians are really educated people. I'd love their responses. Um, um, but yeah, we didn't really have time to, to get the market research done, if you know what I mean. Um, anybody else? Oh, yes, yourself there, Kaywin. Um, thank you for being here, Richard. And um, I just have to say what an honor it is to have your work and to have this work in the collection of the National Gallery of Art. So thank you. Thank you. Um, my question's about, uh, at the beginning, you described the work as parafiction. And I wonder if you could expand on that. Actually, I heard I heard that Yasufumi, who from the Tate, uh, called it called my work "Parafiction." And I, I thought that's pretty cool, <laughs> <laughs> and I used it uh, because you brought up English literature, and um, I just don't really know what it means. No, I mean you know, it's kind of half. It's kind of kind of fiction, right? You're 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 employing, as far as I understand it. Maybe you could tell us what parafiction. <laughs> I, I think you're employing um, nonfiction. Into, into a kind of a parafictional state. Perhaps it's like a magical realism. I don't really know. Um, maybe you could help us, actually. <laughs> um, 
when I was in Minneapolis, actually, we did an exhibition called um, uh, Truthiness. Um, and it, it was this idea about how we move in and out of sort of real and fiction in our daily lives without often even knowing that we have moved in and out. Um, and, and so we talked a lot about parafiction then. But I guess I'd, I'd tack on to my question then. If you could talk a bit about how you thought about the work before you made it and how you were thinking about the structure and the what narrative there is to the to the work and then after you shot it how that came together yeah i like truthiness i think that's even better than parafiction it's my it's my new go-to word um yeah um we work very intuitively and uh, we work almost backwards so we 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 don't really know as actually i'm in the middle of this now because i'm trying to make a film about a new video with the same collaborators in the Amazon about deforestation. And I'm trying to fundraise, and it's impossible because they're like, so what's it going to be about? And I'm like, I really don't have a fucking clue. Because <laughs> um, we really don't have a clue until, until through the process of making, we, it, this thing emerges, which we don't fully understand until we've spent some time with it. And actually, in the Barbican, when I first opened the show in 2017, this incoming, I, I didn't even know how to speak about it. Um, and you learn <laughs> through the school of hard, life, hard knocks how to speak about it more effectively. But with, yeah, the process is very intuitive. You're really working from the gut um, and following your nose. Um, and you've you got to be in the field, you know. If you're a documentarian, you can't just sit around reading the paper. Um, it's funny, we, we, me and Trevor, we were really exhausted. We've been filming for years. And, you know, it's not good on your personal life either because you... You know, you have um, to go to somebody's birthday or it's your wife's anniversary. And, oh, so sorry, we have to jump on a plane to, um, to, to Niger uh, tonight. Um, see you in two weeks. But we were really didn't want to... The, the, the jungle refugee camp was being burned. We'd, I'd been there about 10 times. I'd never taken the camera out. It was too tense. It wasn't, nothing was going on. Or, or, or there were riots happening. They were far too dangerous to get stuck in on. They were in the middle of the night, and they were like phalanxes of riot police. It was just, it was a very frustrating place. I couldn't get my head around. But then I got on the phone to Trevor when I, I read that they were burning the jungle. And we had an hour-long conversation. Where neither of us wanted to go back. <laughs> and then Trevor said after an hour of us just, talking and talking and talking because we had to like, literally buy the flight and go straight to the airport he, he quoted an ice hockey player uh, I, don't know, I don't know which one because I don't study ice hockey maybe you guys know him but he said you miss every shot you don't take <laughs> I don't know who the hell that does anyone know who that was? No. <laughs> and so when he said that I'm like oh god alright I'll buy the flights so. <laughs> and we did we bought the flights we got there and we got an extraordinary scene you know we got all this footage that you see which I think is a key scene in the film and um, and that's the result of a lot of risk failure um, patience um, frustration and all the rest of it um, and so w the way we'd make it we would shoot some go and shoot some try and shoot some and then we come back to the studio with the material and try and sort of put it into a little mini vignette episode with hopefully tr Ben would give us a few tracks to help us with the edit, because it's hard to edit something visual without some, some rhythm, some sound rhythm. And so we would do that, and then, and then we'd go and shoot some more whenever something would happen, and we'd, we'd put that together. And then over the course of two or three years, we just put them together in this like 
chronological sequence and the more or less as we shot is, is how, how the thing took, I don't think we sh shifted things around very much. Um, and then at the end you see, you realize what you made and you're like, okay, so that's what it is. So does that answer your question? I wanted to know about funding and if you have more than one camera and it just seems like prohibitive, Yeah, it was a tough piece to make. Um, um, and that camera was not cheap, and we only had one. My gallery helped me buy half of it, and I paid for the rest through print sales from my past work, which was quite successful, both critically but also commercially. And so I had the good luck to be able to fold that, the savings back into this project. But now I'm in a position where <laughs> I have a work that is not so successful. <laughs> And so I'm trying to make an e e equally, if not more, ambitious film with no savings. And, so and this is what most artists have to deal with all the time. And so I'm actually writing grant applications, and, um, and that's a t tricky one. Um, but um, I mean, I've even gone to Hollywood, and they said, oh, great, yeah, we'll fund that. It's about the rainforest? Cool. As long as it's got a happy ending, we'll give you <laughs> So I said, no. Well, with that happy ending, maybe you can help Richard's bottom line and buy a copy of the book. Um, this has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.